Welcome to a new episode of the Tennis Lifestyle Podcast. I'm uh, Gianluca Sola. In this episode, I chat to P.T. Norval. Uh, P.T. is a former professional tennis player from South Africa. He was very successful, especially in doubles, um, where he won a silver medal at the Barcelona Olympics in 1992, partnering Wayne Ferreira. Um, in the episode, we uh, talk about his tennis journey, um, his career in singles and in doubles. Uh, we also discuss the current state of tennis in South Africa and um, why South Africa produced um, so many talented doubles players in the past. Um, don't, don't miss out also at the end of the podcast where we have the mega rapid fire quiz. Uh, that's always fun to listen to. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Ciao, ciao. Hi, PT. Can you hear me well? Yes, Sergio Luca. I can hear you. Oh, yeah, I hear you perfectly well. Thanks. Thanks for uh, taking time um, on a Sunday morning, especially, to, um, to come on my podcast. I uh, really appreciate it. Um, no, you're more than welcome. I look forward to it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, um, the person you're uh, listening to, just uh, for my listeners, is uh, Pete Norval, known as Pete Norval. Um, he is a South African ex-professional tennis player. Uh, just a bit of background um, uh, before we get going. is um, uh, Pete was, well, has had an amazing tennis career, especially in doubles. Um, some of your major accomplishments include a career singles high of 125, a doubles highest ranking of 16. Um, in doubles, uh, you won the year-end championship finals in, uh, in 2000, uh, two ATP Master Series, um, K-Biscayne uh, in Miami and Hamburg, and you won a total of 14 ATP doubles titles. Uh, you also reached the quarters in all slams and a semi in Wimbledon and also won a silver medal at the Barcelona Olympics in 1992 uh, with partnering uh, Wayne Ferreira. Uh, just some of the players you've played against, um, there's some tennis greats, uh, which are very interesting. Uh, just a few of them is like Boris Becker, Michael Stieg, uh, Leandre Pais. Uh, Mark Whitford, Santoro, Querton, and also Roger Federer. Um, if I'm correct, right now you are uh, coaching, you've got your own tennis academy, the Novel Tennis in Gauteng. And um, yeah, I've probably missed out a lot of stuff, but uh, it looks like you've, uh, you've had an amazing career. And um, well, out of everything that I've listed there, is there one that really stands out uh, for you the most? Yeah, that's um, that's always a very good question because as you know, sometimes there's results that you achieve that um that the public sees as something unique or special, and then there's results that you achieve where you felt you might have played some of your best tennis, um, which uh, which you feel yourself. So if if I can split it into those two categories, um, I think the Olympic yeah. Games, uh, the Olympic silver medal was a um was a, a very special achievement um, from a public point of view, um, seeing um, the situation our country was in back then, um, not having taken part in the Olympic Games in 32 years. And uh, Wayne and I won the first medal in 32 years, um, a post-isolation um, era in sport for our country. So yeah. I, think that, that, I think that was very, very big from a sporting point of view. And also... Um, seeing it was uh, it was quite difficult uh, for all our other sports to um, to take part in international sport and and for us to have having been the first to do it was was I think was very special and um, I think I think for, personally I think winning the ATP finals um, um, was uh, the best um, playing result seeing that um, um, amongst the professionals the ATP finals as seen as the most difficult tournament to win on tour. Um, uh, yes. uh, 
the reason for that is because obviously you need to beat um, four of the best teams in the world in one week, you know, and that often, even if you win a grand slam, you don't have to do that um, because people lose. Yes. But, um, but winning the ATP finals, you have to play against the best teams, top eight teams in the world, and you've got to beat all four of them to win it. So I, 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 I qualified for the ATP finals a couple of times, but um, in 2000, I managed to, to win it. And um, I, I, I felt that, that was probably the best playing achievement I, I, I had over the years. Okay, fantastic. And you did that with the American, am I right? Was that Donald, um, um, was that uh, what um, in 2000, am I right? Passing, yes, uh, yes yeah. Johnson. He was an American player and um, uh, he was like me also, you know, most of the years a top 10 team doubles player and I've played against him often. And in, in that year, we decided to partner up, you know, once or twice. Okay. Um, I, I recall partnering up with him, I think, in uh, on, on clay courts early in the season. The first one we played, we won. We, then we didn't play together for a couple of couple of weeks, and we decided, okay, let's play again. We played a tournament on grass. We won it again, and then said, okay, let's let's play. And then we started playing the summer leading up to the US Open. We had a good season, and then we had a really good season indoors. So that's um. Yeah, you know, that make, makes you think you should have maybe played with a guy a bit earlier, but, um, <laughs> but that's just that's just how it works out. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's go back. T tell us about your tennis journey. Um, where did it start? Uh, with who? Um, yeah. Um, if you can just tell us how you get got into tennis. Yeah. Um, when I was young, about you know five or six years old, um, my oldest brother played some of the local tournaments down in Cape Town where I grew up. And um, very similar to the what the kids play these days, the you know the weekend mini series tournaments. Uh, and um, I was hitting against uh, the wall at home, and my my brother was playing a couple of local tournaments, and he said to my mom, "No, look, you know you, you should let this guy go play. He can hit the ball against the wall." And um, that's how it started. I played, and the second tournament I played, I, I won. I won. And um, and I just started playing all the local tournaments in my area until you know i started getting better and um and i started tra traveling to uh, the the countrywide tournaments to play them a very similar okay. to the um the growth point super eight events that we have around the country at the moment in the holidays where all the best juniors play and yeah. um i started yeah. traveling to these tournaments and um i had a very good friend who who lived uh, in the same neighborhood um and um, he was uh, he was at the same level I was, and we started practicing together and training together, and um, and also traveling to tournaments together. We became best friends, and by the time okay. we, we were under twelve, we were both number one and two in the country, and um, and we remained best friends all the way going onto the tour later years. Um, his name oh. is his name is David Nankin. He works for the USDA and coaches various okay. pros on the tour. You know, you had a different route to mine, but um, yeah, so we kind of, yeah. And then we, we had a pretty strong okay. group of players in the same age group uh, throughout the juniors. And, um, and basically. Sorry maybe, to, to interrupt you. Yes. Were you one of the juniors who like won the nationals were, was very, very good or um, um, yeah. Or, or were you just like, a, a, a top 10, let's put it that way. Or, or were you like a number one, won all the nationals, blah, blah, blah. Yes, I, I was, I was the, I was the number one, but um, I, my, my parents, yeah. what they did with me, which is, which I believe to do with certain juniors, if they, you know, if their character can handle it. When I, when I got close to number one, when I was about 10, 11 years old, and then um, they decided to, to skip an age group to give me stronger tennis. Okay. So, um, and then um, playing in the higher age group, I ended, you know, top eight in the country the next year. And when I went back to my same age group the next year, I was actually one level already ahead of them. And then I was by okay. far number one. And I repeated that in the following age group. And I must say, in my case, it worked um, because it elevated me yes. a level of, uh, above my competition. But um, from from past experience and having coached the last almost 20 years, you know, obviously, you know, if, if, if a young player does that or wants to do that, they've got to understand that you will lose for a while before you start winning, you know. So, um, so yeah. I guess, um, so I guess that's the risk yeah. you take with certain players. Okay. Yeah. And I, I guess also it's, I, I don't know if you agree, but maybe 
junior results are probably not that important if you want to take your tennis to a different level later. I, I, I do agree. It's not, it's not relevant. Um, I, th- there's been so many examples. By the time I got onto the tour and you know, played against you know, everybody that you mentioned before, everybody had a different route. Um, it was clear that yeah. uh, you know, most of the players were quite um, uh, uh, relatively talented, good athletes, and you know, they obviously were extremely motivated to become great players. But they didn't necessarily have to be a great player at 10, 11, 12 years old, like guys like Agassi was from my era, Sampras maybe. You know, those, are, those guys are my age. And, um, and you know, some of them started pretty young, and they were good juniors and also very good juniors. And then there were others that came on the tour that, you know, hardly played good juniors at all. You know, they just uh, took a different yeah. route and came on the tour and, you know, became great, great players. So I, there is no certain pathway. Um, but yeah. as, I think as a junior player, you, you, um, you need to compete. You need to enjoy competing. Um, you don't have to win everything, but uh, the competing is important. And, um, and obviously with the young kids, they're, um, you know, they physically they're developing, developing at different ages. So uh, that, that plays a, yeah. a huge role because if it's, a, if it's a big guy or good, you know, they can, they can possibly be much better when they're younger, but they'll have challenges when they're older because maybe their game wasn't developed enough, you know. So, um, so yeah, the pathway yes. that was mine, but, um, but I believe there are different yeah. ones. And, and what, um, let's say, after your juniors, was there a, a period or a moment better that you decided, let's take this further, or your parents or your coach together with you? Yes, there was. I was um, watching TV back in those days with limited TV where we used to watch Wimbledon um, back in the day. And um, it you could even see that it was possible to become a professional player and earn money from playing tennis and travel around the world. So that was quite attractive. And even at a young age of, of about 10, I started um, dreaming about that. And that's what I wanted to do. So that at an early age already, I wanted to be a professional player and get out there and play. And, um, and obviously, that's, that's, that was just a dream. And um, at around the age of about uh, 15, 16, when I started to do really well and even play senior tournaments and play entry-level ATP events, I got my first ATP points at the age of 14, um, going into 15. And um, so I, I saw that I was already competitive. And... Um, and yes, so even from that young age, I, I already knew I wanted to be a professional player. Okay, okay. Uh, was was um, I don't know in those days. I, I'm pretty sure it was. Was was going to a US college uh, ever considered in your case? Yes, very much. It, it was. Um, if you look at the the two pathways I took versus my best friend that I mentioned earlier, you know, we were relatively the same level I started to do slightly better than him at the end of the or, or the middle of the juniors you could say but what happened to me is uh, is I at the age of 17 I already qualified at an um, you know ATP 250 event in Toulouse in France and won a match in a main draw and started beating top guys in the top 100 at re- already at the age of 17 so what happened to me is I I um uh, I was never going to go to college because of the fact that um, at the age of at the end of my 18th year, when I was supposed to go to college, I was already uh, in the top 150 in the world. So um, it okay. it was relatively impossible then to go to college, you know, and and give up that opportunity. Within six months, I was to, uh, main draw of the uh, Grand Slams in singles. So um, after that, so uh, in my um, middle of my 19th year. I was main draw Wimbledon. So, you know, obviously you're not going to give that up to go to college. So, um, um, whereas my best friend took the other route, he went to, um, he went to UCLA and spent two and a half years playing college and then, um, and then felt he was good enough to go on the tour. And then he went on the tour. So it was way more common for the players to go to college first and then go on the tour, uh, in my years. But, but you did get cases where guys matured early. And they, you know, they wanted to go straight on the tour. But I would say that was maybe about only maybe 10, 15% of the players that ended on, up on the tour with me later years that did that, uh, the route that I took. Okay. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah, if you're uh, very good already at that age. 
yeah, then it's probably worth uh, giving it a shot. Um, yeah. Um, are you here? Sorry, Peter, to, to, to ask you this, but are, are you hearing me nice and clear? Because your voice is a little bit broken up. Um, I am hearing you clear. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay, perfect. Um, that, so uh, another question I had um, is, you, uh, did you start off playing singles and doubles? Or, or uh, I'm always curious, did the transition, in, how did the transition into doubles ha happen? Um, yeah. Yes. No, no. Look, I was playing predominantly singles um, in the beginning, like my, most players do. And um, as, as I mentioned, I, I, I started doing well quite young. And, um, and it was almost only singles, you know, when you were still young, you know, you couldn't really do both that much, you know, doubles actually also took a little bit out you. And, um, and I was in the main draw of the Australian Open singles in the beginning of my 19th year in January. Um, that was my first main draw appearance directly on my ranking. And then I was main draw Wimbledon that same year. And what happened to me is that was the height of my singles career um, at Wimbledon. I was going to do really well in the grass. It suited uh, my game style. And um, two weeks before Wimbledon, I played one of the warm-up tournaments on grass. And um, I was playing in the semifinals um, against a top player. I, I remember beating a top 30 player in the quarterfinals in the semis. I was playing, um, I can't remember, but... Um, but uh, it was six all in the tiebreaker and in the first set. And I went for a volley. The weather is really cold in England that time of the year. And I, I snapped my wrist and, um, and had a really bad wrist injury. I ended up playing Wimbledon just because of the fact that I, you know, it was, I wanted to. It was a dream of mine to play in the main draw there for the first time. But I shouldn't have. And, um, and I, was, I was main draw all the tournaments leading up to the US Open, the whole summer circuit for the rest of the year. And I... I had to withdraw from everything because of the injury. I was out for nine months. And um, when I came back after that nine months, um, it was the year between 1989 and um, 1990. And what happened on the ATP tour, if you go back in the history in those years, they had one of the biggest um, changes on the ATP tour. Well, the, the biggest change with marketing, with ranking systems between 89 and 90. So when I came back, that change had happened. Uh, that change was quite negative towards my ranking. When I left, my ranking was about okay. 120. And when I came back, my ranking was like 250 because I didn't play enough tournaments. And the new, the new ranking system was based on playing a lot of tournaments, just like it is today. And, um, and that okay. kind of hurt me. And when I came back, and I was um, for some reason, it took me longer to... Um, to come back to the level that I was. And during that period, I started playing some doubles um, just because I was traveling with Wayne in the same group. You know, you know, we used to have that tennis South Africa TSA uh, traveling squads with a couple of guys, the top guys traveling together with a coach. And um, what happened, yeah. with, what happened with Wayne and I in that period is the first day we stepped on the court to play doubles together, we started winning everything we played. And um, okay. and that um, I must say that had a, a negative effect on my singles career when I started to come back to play the singles as well because what happens well with uh, singles versus doubles, let's say if you play on the Challenger Tour uh, going into the ATP Tour, if you, if you have a very good week in doubles, uh, you're playing Monday to Saturday. The problem is is you have to fly to yeah. the next tournament and play qualifying and sign in for qualifying Friday night to play qualifying on Saturday morning. So if you're um, in the semifinals of the previous week's doubles, you can't play the qualifying for the next week. So, okay. so that's how it works on the tour. So um, if that happens too many weeks in a row, you, you, you are basically missing too many weeks of singles because you're doing so well in doubles. And that is exactly what happened to me. It happened too many times. You start, you know, the few times you do play singles, you know, you're not as sharp as the other guys that are playing it every week. And then eventually your ranking yeah. gets worse and worse. Your doubles ranking gets better and better and your singles ranking gets worse and worse. And, and it's difficult to breach that gap. And that's exactly how it happened to me. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, one of the questions I, I really wanted to ask you, and um, actually when I met you at the tournament we had here in Cape Town in, in December, I, I, I mentioned it to you. Um, 
is um, your generation in South Africa had a huge amount of great doubles players. Um, like, um, I'm, I'm going to miss a lot of them out, but I mean, just to mention Wayne Ferreira, uh, John uh, Yeager, Robbie Koenig, uh, Chris Haggard, Marius Barnard, David Adams. I mean, there were at least, I, I don't know, I haven't really counted or anything, but there were at least easily over 10 top 100 doubles players from South Africa. Um, why was that? How did that happen? Was it just, uh, was it something to do with the training back then, the system, sponsorships, the federation? What, what, I mean, that's quite unusual. What, what happened? Well, I think, I think what's interesting to the general public, what happened is, uh, firstly, is what happened with the game of tennis during the middle 90s. That's, the, that's very important because what happened with the, um, with the South Africans is many of the South Africans grew up in high altitude. So they were used to very, very fast conditions. And, um, and even internationally, uh, the game, even if they, the, the game was played at coast level, many of the tournament's conditions, um, uh, the, the, surf, the court surface as well as the ball was fast. So you would have a lot of servant volleyers on tour those days, even more so than grand stroke players. So even internationally, a lot of players were servant volleying and playing way more aggressive than they do today. So, um, Okay. So what happened is obviously the South African game style suited that because the most players played aggressively and um, and even playing up in high high altitude. Let's say at least half the players that ended up on tour came from high, high altitude conditions. So obviously then they were definitely servant volleying because it was so fast. And um, okay. So what happened to the tour? Um, so so for that reason there was a lot of players that uh, that were successful playing. Um, let's say fast tennis. So the, the, the good singles players were very good servant volleyers. And obviously if you're a good servant volley, you're going to be a good doubles player because it's uh, it's played at the net yeah. and you know, that's just the way it is. So that's the reason why we had so many good doubles players during the, there was even more. I recall the one year um, having 17 guys in the main draw of the Wimbledon doubles, South African. So I don't know if any, every, any country has ever had more. So that's, that's quite an amazing stat. And um, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. 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 And um, mm. so what happened then in the middle of 90s yeah. is um, the ATP made a very strong move towards making all the court surfaces around the world slower. And, um, yeah. and yeah. also not yeah. just making the surface slower, but also the ball. They, they, they made the ball more fluffy. Yeah. So, uh, and the reason for that yeah. is they, um, for, you know, for reasons of making the sport more attractive to, to the public, they they wanted the rallies to be longer because they felt that sure yeah it would be more attractive yeah. and so slowly but surely they started making it slower 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 from about ninety five to two thousand which was my last year on tour and unfortunately for the guys that were serving volleying and let's say serving yeah. specialist as you remember back in the day it became impossible on certain surfaces to serve and volley it it was really impossible yeah. Um, unless, yeah, I'd, I'd like to yes. maybe add to that. Also, another element um, must have been the strings with the introduction of the poly strings. You know, it made it really easy for someone just to stay at the back of the court as well. So it was like a double. It was like you're right. You know, effect. Uh, uh, definitely, when you know when Luxalon came on the tour, it was like a huge scientific invention, and um, and it gave the guys so much extra whip on the ball. So for the guys that came to net. You know, if you did come come to net, you had to come to net on a really good shot. Um, even the guys that serve and volleyed that weren't very good off the baseline, you know, they would have to spend a bit more time on the baseline before they could get to net. On second serves anymore, it was just impossible. You know, the the the, the returner just had way too much time um, uh, to play the passing shot or the return. So, so it really changed things. If you recall back in the day, players like um, uh, Tim Hinman. Is a great example. You know, he was yeah. a full-on servant volley. He had some ground strokes, but uh, I mean, uh, when I personally speak to Hinman today, even you know, um, he, he says clearly yeah. that, uh, that that slower ball, you know, had a huge effect on his results in the second half of his career because it just became too slow. Yeah. Otherwise, he could especially, have maybe won a Grand Slam. You know, so. Yeah. yeah, especially Wimbledon. Wimbledon, there was a particular year. Where I don't remember exactly which one where they. 
fast to, I mean, some players even were saying they went from the French to Wimbledon and it seemed like the same speed. <laughs> so uh, that, 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 that is absolutely correct. Yeah, what they did at what they did at Wimbledon is is they started uh, cutting the grass in the opposite direction. So they used to cut the grass from the net to the baseline, so the grain of the grass um, yeah. was very fast and the ball stayed low. And then they started cutting the grass in the opposite direction to make the ball bounce higher, higher. So um, yes. th that's the yeah. one change which also made it slower. And also the ball, um, even today, if you go to Wimbledon, the, the men and the women do not use the same ball. Yes. The, um, the women's ball is 50% slower than the men's ball. So um, so th th they had a couple of changes to make the men's game especially extremely slow. You know, the days I used to play Wimbledon, it was so fast. You know, I mean, I recall playing Goran Ivanisevic with his serve. You know, it's a, he's got a rocket of a serve back in yeah. those days. You know, that serve, that serve, you know, you'd be at a, that serve would come um, at your head height. Um, through the court at, at a huge pace. So, you know, it's, um, it, it really was very, very fast yeah. back in the day. So if you, if you did have a good serve, it would be a huge example. That's one of the reasons why I came on the tour because my serve was very strong. I possibly had a top yeah. 10, top 10 in the world serve and, um, and that helped me to play in those fast conditions. But like I said, you know, it changed over the years and it made it difficult um, to play the game with only a serve and maybe let's say one more shot. Now it's, you know, the guys out there today, you know, they've, they've got to have yeah. so much more. Would, would you agree that maybe with this change in surfaces, speeds and balls and so on, it's maybe made tennis more boring? Do you think we should go back to the speeds of the courts very different to each other? Well, if you listen, if you if you listen to what Federer says these days, when you when, when, when he talks about um, the speed surfaces, he, he's very uh, diplomatic in in his point of view. Obviously, he would like the faster surfaces because that suits his game style. But um, yeah. but for me, um, look for me when I watch tennis on TV and when I do a, still attend some of the international events every now and again, you know, the tennis is very attractive. I, I must say, even for me, that's. Um, that used to play a different style. You know, I love the way the guys are playing and, and it's aggressive and it's, you know, they, they're hitting the ball at an amazing speed. So look, it is worrying how weak they are at the net. I must say, you know, that if you look at the way we used to play and how good our volleys used to be compared to how bad they volley these days. And they really do volley badly compared to my era, um, the, 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 the pros. Mm. Um, yeah. with the exception maybe of one or two players in the top 100 of which Federer is one but the rest really volley they do not volley even close to the same level but they don't have to that's the thing you know yeah. so if um, if um, like you just mentioned if if there was a move as Federer mentioned in the last two weeks I read something uh, that Federer said that he would like to see some tournament directors uh, around the world make some of their courts a bit faster and mm -hmm. um, that would really challenge these baseline game, uh, these heavy baseline players to do, uh, they're, they're going to have to come to net a little bit at least. And, yes. um, and that would force them to start improving their, their, their net game or let's say their, the attacking part of their game even. And I think that would be a nice addition. I wouldn't want to go back to the very fast all the way through the circuit because that would be negative, I think. But I would like right. to see certain tournaments um, become very fast and see how some of the players adapt to that. Yeah. yeah. Maybe just do a season um, leading to, not a season, but a, a month or two leading to Wimbledon where there's more grass um, yes. tournaments and uh, very fast. Yeah. Make them all very fast. That, that could be a nice um, introduction maybe. Yeah. No, absolutely. I agree. Yeah, that would be, obviously that's um, it's, it's difficult for the ATP tour to, with their calendar, to get everything yeah. fitted into the year. And at the moment, it's, you know, with COVID, it's even worse. But um, but assuming they're back sure. to a normal um, time, you know, that would be the best time to do it. But if they wanted to do that on the calendar physically, they, they would obviously need to have a bigger gap between the French Open and Wimbledon to do it. Um, otherwise, yeah. it wouldn't be possible. You know, they, they needed an extra two, three weeks there, which is not impossible to create. But I know the players on the tour are quite negative um, when they start talking about extending the length of the tour. 
you know, they feel their off season they need it in order to recover year in year out. So, um, so that's I don't, I don't know if uh, if it's possible to happen, but I must say it would be nice to see something in that direction. Yeah, um, I wanted to now maybe ask you. Uh, I want to be like very critical now because um, I think I can after having lived in South Africa for twenty years. But if you look at the last twenty years, um. South Africa, with the exception of maybe Kevin Anderson, which obviously, you know, every country and in tennis, there's tons of countries that have exceptions. You can't look at exemptions. You could look at Bulgaria with Dimitrov and Cyprus with, uh, with uh, Baghdadis and so on. But with the exception of Kevin Anderson, South Africa has not produced a great or a number of great players or good players even in the last 20 years. Right now, they are, we are standing with only three top thousand players, and the two best are around a hundred. Uh, what, what, what's going on? What, why do you think that is? Yes, that, um, that, that, that is a huge worry the last 20 years. You know, when I came off the tour pretty much 20 years ago, um, is the time when I got involved into junior tennis straight away, and um. I must say, I found it uh, extremely enjoyable uh, to work with the young players in my own country. I was always going to come back and do it. And, and when I came back was pretty much the time when um, things started to deteriorate um, badly in, in, in our country, maybe with all sport, not just with tennis, but um, personally, obviously, I can give an opinion on what happened with the tennis because I was around it. I was around the federation during that time quite a bit. I started that uh, big academy down in Stellenbosch um uh, in yeah. 2001 and um i i must say that um it was tough to see how the uh, junior tournaments started uh, getting weaker uh, firstly secondly uh, the few atp tour events challenges the big local circuit that we had in the country had a huge effect on opportunities for young players um, in my years, as you recall, we um, we had uh, three satellites. That basically means 12 futures in a row in our country. We had uh, nine challenges, and we had a big ATP Tour event in our own country. So uh, it gave you that huge starting block to get your career going. You can make a lot of points, ATP points, WTA as well, inside our country, and then you can travel. So that makes the initial traveling a, a lot easier. And um, what's, yeah. what's happened is... Um, for many reasons, possibly politically. Um, the uh, companies that used to support tennis, the big companies like the Eltec of the past um, that supported and put a standard bank that put a lot of money into tennis, they lost faith in management <clears throat> of sport in general and also in tennis. And they started withdrawing sponsorship. And obviously that means not being able to host all these tournaments. And, um, and, yeah. and therefore, the kids had uh, less opportunities in our country. Now, obviously, South Africa is quite far away from the rest of the world, which means that it became expensive for the kids to be able to get out there and compete and get even their first points. And I think that, that just got worse and worse as the years got along. And, um, mm. and it became more difficult. So for me, the, for me, the number one reason for having less players out on the tour today um, is the lack of local competition, international competition um, um, in our own country. It's lack not, of tournament. Absolutely. It's, okay. it's not for me so much the, yeah. the coaching and the academies and things like To be quite honest, I think the academies and the coaching around the country now is a lot better than it was back in my day. A lot better. And, um, okay. and uh, so it's not that. Um, there aren't, there, look, there aren't that many pros um, that are uh, coaching juniors around the country. There's just, you know, myself and maybe one or two or three more that are still involved with juniors. And I hope some more of the ex-pros can get involved. But, but my opinion is, is that uh, the, the role that the tournaments play um, that we need is, is, yeah. is much, it's much bigger. You know, if you have your, your local okay. tournament, then, then obviously it's easier for the kids to play against your national players against, in their own backyard. So I believe that's, that, yeah. that was the biggest thing in our country. Okay. Okay. No, it makes sense. Yeah. Tournaments are very important. I mean, I would like to extend that also to, I'm sure it's the same answer, but if you look at the women's tennis, it's even worse. I mean, honestly, 
that it's like inexistent at this moment. I think there's three in the top thousand and nobody in the top 400. Um, and um, yeah, I, probably that's the same reason. I don't know of lack of tournaments. And then I'm very much, um, as you may know, also I've, I've got a couple of kids who play the TSA tournaments, juniors. The junior, and so I've been doing this for seven, eight years now, the whole, the whole tournaments and so on. And, um, okay, take a pinch of salt, but the juniors also, I, when I look around, I don't see anything uh, very exciting. I know it's difficult to judge a junior, but uh, I don't see any juniors that really stand out, to be honest. And um, the other thing is, I think the mentality of the juniors, even the ones that are pretty good, their goal is, well, let's try and go into a U.S. college. They're not even thinking, I want to try and become a professional. What, what do you think about that? Yes. Well, in two parts, um, just regarding the girls and the ladies that play, um, yes, that it is a huge worry. And I, I know it's a huge worry to everybody in the country that uh, – that the girls are not um, taking the next step from uh, being a, a good junior or possibly a very good junior to, to going on the tour. Um, I think um, I, I've got my opinion on that. I think that, um, that over the years, you know, when you, when you had good systems in the country, it helped the girls to be able to yeah. be able to play longer locally. And, um, and, and you can almost say be in a safer environment before uh, until they're mature enough to be able to travel the world. Because what happens now is most of the girls that try and play, they have to go do it on their own. Maybe they've got a parent traveling with or they've got a coach traveling with, but they're not traveling in a structured group. Um, maybe with an experienced okay. person um, being far away from South Africa. And, and our girls, um, especially the last 20 years, um, they – tend to not travel as well as the girls that did more than 20 years ago. They, um, well, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word, but they've gotten softer. So it's, um, okay. as you know, once you get out there, you, you know, in the rest of the world, it's tough out there, you know, to, to travel and uh, be on your own for long periods away from home. And I, I just don't think our girls emotionally handle that part well. I, I think our girls are extremely talented. You know, if you look at the juniors, you've seen it as well. You see a lot of talent and yeah. there's, there, there's no lack in talent. But talent bears a very small role once you go play professional talent. Talent is, means nothing. And um, yeah. it's all about grit and how tough you can be, how long you can last out there, how many times you can keep on trying. And that's where I think we, we lack it. And I think the only way to get around that in, in the modern time, if you see the young girls now traveling um, from Europe and Eastern Europe, you know, those countries where the kids grow up pretty tough, but they still travel. Yeah. They, tr they still travel with somebody they trust, these girls. They still travel in a yeah. very small group. The, the federation still send yeah. them. And, um, and we, you know, our federation can't afford to do that. So, um, so I think that's the challenge. So I think it's not impossible to improve that in the next 20 years, but it'll have to be more structured where they can travel with um, in, a, in a small group with two or three or four with an experienced coach. Then we can do it. And then obviously to, yeah. to have more tournaments for them locally would also be an improvement. And then, um, yeah. yeah, so I, I hope that can happen. Um, Jean-Luc, sorry, that second part yeah. of the question. Yeah, no, no, look, uh, I, I just wanted to know, no, no, it's a very good answer. Because um, I asked this not, not only about South Africa, but everybody I interview uh, from all over the world. And it, it, it really actually comes down to always the same um, points, the same, you know, there's boxes that must be ticked. And um, in tennis, uh, maybe unlike many other sports, it seems to me that these boxes are many. There's lots of boxes that need to be ticked. Nowadays, you just can't just say, well, I'm a great tennis player. You, you need to, to have support, financial support. You need to, uh, as you say, have a lot of tournaments in your own country. Um, maybe, there's a, maybe there's a good reason now also to have more clay courts. Uh, there's a lot of talk about that. So, yeah, it, there's, there's so many boxes that need to be ticked, and the federation maybe needs to help and give bonuses to 
academies, coaches or players if they win, blah, blah, blah. There's a whole system. So, no, I completely agree with you. And um, I think it's on a, my personal level, If uh, I must say, in being in South Africa, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, every country, there's talent everywhere. But as you said, that talent actually won't really get you anywhere in tennis. Or, you know, it will only get you so far. Then there's all the other boxes that need to be ticked. And uh, I think it's going to take a long time to, to get everything in order, but I hope so. Yes, um um, yes, just yeah, just yeah. Um, just listening to you there, Jean-Luc, on um, that second part and mentioning the talent and even the boys. Um, I think it's very um, it's very true what you said. You know the uh, the same with the boys as, as with the girls. You do see talent, and and the boys do travel a little bit easier um, um, than the girls do. They're um, they're able mm. to do that, but I think I think our boys at the moment in our country, uh, you know they that they don't quite understand what it takes to be a professional player. They do understand what it takes to be a good junior, as well as having a goal to go to mm. the US and try to get a scholarship in the States, because those are all possible goals. Um, but there's a very big, there's yeah. a very big gap between that goal and being a professional tennis player. You know, as you mentioned, all those boxes that need to be ticked now, they need to be ticked very accurately. If you want to give yourself a shot at, um, yeah. At, at, you know, at being a top 100 player, if you look at, you know, Lloyd Harris at the moment is our only guy, you know, that's, um, that's gone out and he really grinded it out in futures, playing all those futures in Egypt and around the world and in many places uh, before he, he makes it to challenger level and obviously to where he is now. Um, he's been mostly, and yes. he's only been mostly just inside the top 100, you know. So um, if you, in my opinion, you're only a professional player or let's say a successful professional player if you can break the top 100 and frequently compete in the main draw of the Grand Slams, um, um, in, in singles, yeah. and well, and if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're in doubles, it's probably top 50. So, um, so yeah. and it, it's not, it's not yeah. easy to get there. That's the problem, you know. So, uh, and um, yeah. so there would have to be a huge shift. And I think that shift is probably what Tennis South Africa mm. is trying at the moment to the best of their ability. You know, they, they've got a couple of challenges coming up now, I see, um, at Rian Fente in Poch, um, which, is, um, which is positive. Um, I personally did yeah. some uh, commentating last year when they had those futures in, in, in Joburg at the old Ellis Park Stadium in, in Pretoria. So if we can get some of these futures and challenges back in the country, I think the um, the chances will, be, will become bigger that the kids will aspire to you know to go that route a bit more. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. No, agree. Yeah, I think uh, if they can get um, a bit like they do in Turkey or Egypt or you know Tunisia or whatever, um, you know, like six weeks of futures or four weeks at least to start off with that, and then a couple of challenges and maybe grow it. Yeah, no, that's uh, great. Will go a long way to help the, the tennis. Um, yeah, the, um, I'm nearly finished. Before going on to my mega rapid fire quiz, <laughs> I've, uh, which don't worry, won't be long. Um, uh, oh yeah, would, would you ever consider coaching an ATP or WT player? As, as have you ever been approached, or would you even enjoy going on the tour again as a coach? Um. Look, I, in the past, I've had the choice whether to um, only work with juniors in my own country uh, versus going on the tour and working with um, professionals on the tour. And um, what I would like um, isn't possible. <laughs> I would like the best case scenario of, um, of uh, working with juniors in my own country, uh, which was my initial um, dream when I started coaching back in Stellenbosch is to create players out of your own academy and then obviously take some of them on the tour on a part-time basis. But um, that's, that's extremely, to a certain extent, I did that. Um, um, back in the day in Stellenbosch, I, I had guys coming through the academy. I, I coached Isak van Amava that got to about 100 in the world. You know, I coached Jeff Kutsia. He became top 10 in the world in doubles. And um, Raven yeah. Carson came out of um, the, um, the Cape Town um, uh, satellite of, of the academy I had down there. And uh, Ruan Rulof's to play Davis Cup. I, I, you know, Yalpi de Klerk, Nicholas Scholes, Madri Leroux, Fed Cup. I had about 10 players that I coached that came through that academy. They didn't make it 
to the top yeah. level of the tour, but they made it to United Davis Cup or Fed Cup level, and some of them, you know, some of them a little bit further. But for me personally, for me yeah. personally, I don't want to be on the tour full time as a professional coach. Um, I, 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 I do enjoy working with juniors way more than I do, um, you know, spending two hours with a guy on tour per day. It's not enough for me. I'm a bit of a workaholic. I want to do more, you know. So, um, so um, I do, yeah. I do, I do enjoy yeah. keeping in touch with my fellow um, ex-professionals on the tour. A couple of years ago, I. I got invited to um, consult for Rowan Bopana in India. He's a, he's a top Indian doubles player, uh, also one of the best in the world back in his yeah. day. And um, he started an academy in his hometown in Bangalore. And um, I uh, traveled back and forth, you know, a couple of weeks a year to help him with his academy. I must say I really enjoyed that, doing that. And then um, okay. and also every now and again, if somebody invites me to come on the tour, let's say for just a two-week period, like I used to do with Isak van Amava and with Jeff Kutsia, I enjoy going back on the tour and seeing all my friends from back in the days and obviously, you know, staying in touch with uh, tennis at that level is, uh, is very enjoyable. But I must say, I don't want to do it uh, 35, yeah. 40 weeks a year. Okay. Um, finally, I, I had a quick look on your, well, ATP profile. It's still there. Obviously, you're not uh, playing anymore. But it was uh, funny because it says you enjoy uh, golf, parachuting, and bun bungee jumping. Um, are you an adrenaline junkie? <laughs> or um, are, are you still jumping off airplanes? Is that something you're still yeah, doing? Yeah, I, I, I might have <laughs> to contact the ATP and make one or two adjustments to that old profile. Um, there's been some, um, you know, I've, um, <laughs> I've aged, unfortunately, <laughs> or fortunately, over the last many years. You know, that's based okay. basically on 25, almost 30 years ago. Um, the, the, the golf part I still do. At the moment, I live in Pekinwood Golf Estate, just by the Hartbeespoort okay. Dam, right in between Johannesburg and Pretoria. And um, I'm going to play uh, golf this afternoon. So, <laughs> so Sunday afternoons are my golfing afternoons. So I, I do enjoy that. I've got my friends here and we, we play golf. And um, I, 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 I really do enjoy that. Um, the other um, adrenaline things I, I don't do anymore, I, I must say. I, when I was very young and on the tour and things, and we'd, we, every opportunity we used, we wanted to do some fun stuff. And that was all part of it. And I think my profile is based on, <laughs> on my day in, day out opinion back then. But I uh, don't do that, uh, that, that uh, dangerous stuff anymore. <laughs> okay. It needs to be updated. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay, I, I usually end my podcast with this uh, mega rapid fire quest, uh, uh, quiz. You can just um, um, answer whatever you feel like as short as possible or as long as possible. It doesn't really matter. Um, I'm yeah. ready. Are you ready? <laughs> All right. Okay, what's your very first memory of tennis? My brother. Okay. Um, playing with your brother, you now, my brother getting me to play tennis. Oh, okay. Um, if somebody that never saw you play, uh, if uh, and you need to describe what type of player you are, define what type of player you are, uh, how would you describe yourself? Seven volier. Seven volier. Uh, your best shot. Serve. Uh, did you have a tennis idol growing up? Beyond Borg. Okay. Uh, currently, favorite player, male or Federer. female? If you've got Federer. one. Federer. Okay. Uh, list the big three, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, from your favorite to least favorite. Uh, Federer one, Djokovic two, Nadal three. Okay. Uh, is there one match that you played which you can say it's the best you have ever played? The finals of the ATP finals in Bangalore against the Indian couple, uh, Bupati Pais, who's one of the two best three teams of all time during that period, and beating them in straight sets, uh, best out of five. Okay. Uh, best tournament in the world? Wimbledon. 
Uh, favorite surface? Art courts. Okay. This one's a bit of a funny one, uh, but I'll ask it. Um, favorite tennis shoe? Adidas. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's, uh, do you know what strings you play with in tension? I used to play with, um, with Bow Brand, who was, uh, the, was the competition for VS Gut, and tension was 62. Okay, wow, that's that's quite quite a, a tight tight tension. Um, favorite all time racket? Wilson. Um, yeah, this one uh, I like. Um, if you have to book a restaurant and invite free players, any era, male or female, uh, which restaurant will you book and who will you invite? Oh, the restaurant, it's difficult. We, we went to so many. Um, wow. Um, it'll be... Oh, geez. Yeah, the restaurant stuff, I can't remember those restaurants anymore. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be in New York City. <laughs> Picking one of the, the great restaurants we used okay. to go there. Um, three players that I would like to spend with time with. Um... um I know Federer well, but uh, it's always nice to spend time with him. Um, um, and he's a, he's one of the nicest guys on tour. He's the one. Um, and then I would um, have Nadal with him because Nadal, uh, him and Nadal are close. And um, I don't know Nadal personally, but I know his coaches very well. They used to be on the tour with me. And um, the, the third player would be... Um, I would just like to ruffle their feathers a bit, these guys, and I'll bring Serena Williams in just to keep it interesting. Okay. Wow, some big big names there. Um, uh, you said you know the old coaches, well, coaches of Nadal. Is, is, is that because I also recently interviewed jo Joffrey Porter? Is that one of them? Uh, no, know? I'm very good friends with Francesco Roig. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah Roy, right. Obviously, yeah, Carlos, no, Carlos still, Moya, I yeah. know well, um, and I played him. But um, but Roig was was a friend. Uh, he's uh, we were close. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, great. Uh, do you do you like cooking? Not at all. I'm a real South African Buddha boyki. I love brying and being outside. <laughs> but the cooking part, it's not that I don't okay. like it. I just don't do it. I've always. I've got a wonderful wife that that, okay. that can um, take part of that part of my life, you know, and she cooks great. Okay. What's your favorite food? Bryflies and vegetables. <laughs> okay. uh, tea coffee? or coffee? Coffee. Um... Let's see. Uh, other than uh, golf, is there any other hobby that you have which is maybe a bit bit unique? No, not that I, you know, on a week in out week out basis, uh, the way my life is now, it's it's not that I've got golf um, that I um, that I you know try to play once a week if 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 I get around to do that. Um, I'm very busy with uh, with coaching with uh, young players, so that keeps uh, that spends most of my time. The rest of the time, I I, uh, around that, I try to, I spend with my lovely wife, um, and, um, in the holidays, every occasion, every now and again, I get to see, um, some of my kids that are still down in Cape Town and my oldest son plays, plays college tennis in the States. So I don't get to see him much, but, um, he's in, his uh, just gone into his fourth year. He's the final year of playing college tennis in the States. And, um, and otherwise, that's it. You know, we've, I've got a close group of friends here where I live in Pekinwood Golf Estate. And, you know, if we, if we can get together with friends, that, that's very special to me, is, uh, is being with, uh, you know, a group of yeah. you know, four or five or six couples that generally do things together. And that's, that's pretty much my life. Okay. No, that's great. Um, if you have to choose between sea, city, mountain or countryside... What's you know, in the favorite? past, it was always sea. I grew up in Cape Town, and I, after my pro career, I, I built my dream house there on the ocean and living on the beach, and I did that for a few years, and, um, and I, I enjoyed that. And I must say, 
obviously living up in the Johannesburg area now the last year, seven, eight years, I haven't done that. So I, I miss it a little bit in order to do that, but it's not practical for me. Um, so if, if I could have a big split between um, the, the, the sea, the, the sea and, the, and, and let's call it the mountain lifestyle, I, that would be ideal. Okay. Are you superstitious? A lot of tennis players are. Are you superstitious? No, I'm not. No, no. Um, what's your favorite country in the world? Can't be South Africa. Switzerland. Okay. Favorite city? That would be London. And is tennis the most difficult sport in the world, yes. do you think? Uh, in 2050, about 30 years from now, do you think tennis will look very different? It would be less different than it was um, the gap between, let's say, 1970 and 2000, because um, that's a 30-year period. I think yes. it will be less different in the following 30 years because obviously you can only hit that, the ball that hard and be that fast. Um, so I think it will be different, um, but less different um, uh, between the change from wooden rackets to, to the more powerful rackets that you see today. Okay. And uh, we're nearly finished. Um, we'll, we're going to create your perfect all-time tennis player. And you have to choose male or female or any era again. It doesn't matter. Uh, let's start with the serve. Kolovic. Return. Djokovic. Forehand. Del Potro. Uh, backhand. Djokovic. Volley. Edberg. Drop shot. Federer. Uh, movement. Djokovic. Mentality. Djokovic. Uh, touch, feel touch. Rafter. Uh, presence uh, aura, like presence aura. Becker. Oh, that was a good one. Uh, that was that was pretty much a Djokovic uh, <laughs> player with a few. Uh, <laughs> a few extra, I, but I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Look, I, you mentioned earlier, Luca, about obviously the the good players, and that I I still think Djokovic is going to be the greatest player of all time. That's my yeah. opinion, and you can see yeah. that in my um in in some of the strengths <laughs> that he has. Um, but obviously, he still has to yeah. do it, you know. So it's difficult yeah. to to well to, to say mean, it I, before he does it. <laughs> yeah, if I, if I can say something, it's not. You know, this big free, I'm, I'm sure it will continue forever. Who's the best? And this guy's the best. And that guy's best. And Federer is the best. And Nadal's the best, etc. Uh, so there will never be a real answer. But I, I think if, if you take at their peak, those free players, I would say Djokovic is the best at his peak. Yeah, I, I agree. Just, I agree. That's just my opinion, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've got a final question, which I ask everyone, and it is ask yourself a question and answer it. It doesn't have to be personal. It can be any type of question. How good do you think you, you could have been if everything went right in your career? Okay. That's a good In my case... In my case, I, <clears throat> I did everything I could in doubles, so I, I couldn't have done more. 
Um, but I've got some regrets um, with that bad injury I got when I was at the height of my singles career. And I believe, I don't, I don't think I would have been top 20, top 30, but, you know, I was, I was probably bound to be at least top 50 uh, with, with, because they, the old ranking system, I would have done that within six months if I didn't get that nine-month delay. So, so that, that is my answer, is to, to if, I, if I could have seen how far I could have gone with the singles without any um, obstacles in the way. Yeah, no, sure. Fantastic. Um, yeah, thanks a lot, PT. That was really interesting. I, I really do hope this recording uh, is good. I, I had a few moments where it wasn't good, but um, I'm sure it will be fine. And, and thanks for taking your time taking, sorry, some time, especially on a Sunday morning. It was uh, great talking to you. And yeah, you had some really, really interesting um, uh, opinions. So thanks a lot. And hopefully see you maybe, um, well, I probably will in a few tournaments around. All right, Gianluca. Yeah, nice to talk to you. I'll see you around. Thank you, man. Okay. okay. Ciao, ciao. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bye. I'm not going to